So I'm going to be preaching from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So feel free to turn there if you have a Bible. I'm going to be preaching from that passage, and I'll be going to other passages to explain it more and to look at some of the concepts there. But yeah, so what I'll start with is basically just the, the main context and the story. So Exodus is part of the Old Testament it's actually the second book of the Bible. It's pretty early in the story of the Bible. And basically, uh, what's happening, if you're unfamiliar in the Old Testament, is um, God has chosen a people, God has chosen a nation, and he's started a special relationship with them or a covenant with them. So it starts with Abraham and then his descendants who, are com- who, are eventually, who eventually come to be known as the nation of Israel. And so these people, they're in slavery to Egypt, in Egypt, but God had promised them and their ancestors that he'd bring them into their own land. And so what God does is he brings them out of slavery in Egypt through these ten signs or plagues that he, he does for the, the Egyptians and Pharaoh who are hardening their hearts against him. And he brings... And so there's those ten signs, those ten plagues, the, the frogs, and the darkness, and the locusts, and the, uh, the hail. There's all kinds. So God does that, the ten plagues, to bring them out. And then he brings them through the Red Sea. And so that's the miracle where this ocean, this body of water, parts in half, and they can walk on dry land to the other side. And, that, and they are rescued and saved from slavery in Egypt through God's power. And it's very obvious that God is working um, in their lives and through them. And so God has done all this because of his promises to their fathers. And he brings them after all this to this mountain, and it's called Mount Sinai, and he gives them his law and his covenant, essentially. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> they, uh, so to explain this, what, what, what God brings them into is his covenant. And so what a covenant is, is basically an agreement um, between two parties. And both, both, uh, both groups agree to do certain things. So God agrees to, you know, bring them into the land. God agrees to bless them. And they agree to worship only God. And like, for the Ten Commandments' sake, the first two is their worship. They'll worship God alone, and they won't worship they won't make any idols or like statues and images to worship them instead. So this happens, and the people wholeheartedly accept um, God, and they say, oh, all of the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And, and uh, during this time, Moses, who essentially was the leader of Israel at the time, who God was speaking through mostly, and God was leading the people through, he's up on the mountain alone, receiving more instructions from God at this point. And so, but during that time, even though Israel, the people of Israel, have just accepted God's covenant, just accepted his, just agreed to do, um, to, to obey God, like these first two commandments, they break those first two commandments within probably a few weeks of accepting them, maybe a month or so. Um, because they, they go and they take gold 
and they fashion, they make a golden cow idol image, and they start worshiping it. And so they've already uh, breached the covenant. They have already disobeyed God in what they said they were going to do. And God forgives them. And that, and this portion of scripture is just after that. God forgives them, and he's talking with Moses, um, and Moses is talking with God, and this is what Moses asks God for in Exodus 33:18. Moses says, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So this is just before my main passage, and this is where I get the title of my message from. This message is knowing the goodness of God. Here, God promises Moses that he is going to come to him. All of his goodness will pass in front of him, and he will proclaim his name to Moses. And that's exactly what happens in the main passage a little later on. And one of the reasons I chose this passage as well, um, Exodus 34, uh, 6 and 7, is because I know it's one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. And I can say that because it's either quoted to or alluded to um, like at least 20 times throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So this um, verse, when God is speaking here, it's very important for, uh, for knowing him. So uh, let me read, and I'm going to just read the first half of it uh, to begin. So Exodus 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. So, and this is why I know this is God fulfilling that promise. I'm going to come down, I'm going to show my goodness, I'm going to proclaim my name. So this is, this is what's happening. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. So there's the first half. I'm going to camp out here for a while. Uh, first off, we see that God says his name, Yahweh. And now if you're unfamiliar, Yahweh is one of the most common names God uses for himself, though most of the time in our Bibles, it's translated as the Lord in all caps, and you can see that there. Often in Bibles, it's all caps, but kind of like small capital letters as well. So like the O and the R and the Z would be a little shorter. So when you do see that, it is um, in originally Yahweh. But out of respect and out of, I guess, a tradition, um, we always translate it as the Lord um, there. But the, the name Yahweh, um, it kind of goes back to this story with Moses. Um, and Moses is first told to go to the people of Israel. And Moses asks God, what, what name should I tell them who you are? And God is like, tell them I will be that I will be, or I am that I am. And that essentially is the meaning of his name Yahweh. It means the one that is, the one that will be. So when God says his name, uh, Yahweh, he's saying uh, the name means that he is. 
He was never created. He was never, uh, he's never going to change. Um, so that's essentially what the name means. And uh, yeah, and so that, that was the first thing, one of the things God promised Moses, right? He said, I'm going to show you my goodness. I'm going to declare my name. So he's declared his name. So the rest of it is talking about God's goodness. And we see that God shows his goodness by um, declaring his character traits, essentially. So first off, and this is like the first point of the sermon, there should be seven to come because God reveals seven things about himself um, and his goodness. So knowing God's goodness means knowing his compassion. He says, Yahweh, the God of compassion. So now compassion, uh, it's an interesting word. It comes from two Latin words uh, that together mean like to suffer with. And we can still see that to a large degree in English because co still means like with, you know, cooperative, um, co-workers. And passion still means like emotion, though originally it was always talking about suffering. Originally it was talking about the passion of Christ, so his, his, uh, his suffering on the cross, and all of that was motivated by his love for us and the joy that was set before him, it says in Hebrews. So we see compassion means to suffer with, right? So someone who's compassionate, they see suffering and they don't stand aloof. Instead, they react to it. They suffer with them emotionally. They have a similar emotion and then they come to be with them and help them, right? So it shows, this first word, it shows that God isn't distant from us. God is, as, as his name implies, you know, different than we are. He was never created. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. And he is, he is God. He is so much above us, but he is still compassionate. Um, he, really, he really and truly sympathizes with us and each of us. When he sees uh, things that happen to us and or things that we choose to do that are wrong, he doesn't respond with neutrality. He's, he is a God of compassion, so he responds by saying, wow, I feel that too, and I'm going to suffer with them. And that's ultimately what Jesus did, right? Um, and so a verse about God's compassion that is amazing is Psalm uh, 103, verse 13. And it says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So I love this psalm and I love this verse. Um, my dad had us memorize the whole psalm at one point, and so he'd sit us down and we'd say it a couple times each day. And I still know it really well, uh, though I guess I learned it in King James. So it says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that fear him. So, but one of the things my dad would say about this verse that I, I'll always remember is um, he would talk about when he first held my oldest brother. So I have two older brothers. I have one younger brother. And so, yeah, my mom's pregnant for a long time. Bring her to the hospital. She gives birth. And so he's in the waiting room or wherever. The nurse finally hands him his first son. And before, you know, he's, I don't know, feeling 
this and that and whatever. But when he says, he said that when he finally held his, his firstborn son, John, looked down, he felt that wave of compassion, that wave of, uh, that protective feeling for his son, right? Just all of a sudden. And so that's what this verse is getting at, right? As a father has compassion on his children, as a father has regard for his children, so the Lord has compassion on everyone who fears him. Uh, just, just a slight breakaway. Those who fear him, essentially it means those who respect him and obey him. And for anyone who's accepted Christ and called them their Lord, you know, if you've called Jesus your Lord, essentially you've said that he is your master. And that's very, that is fearing the Lord to actually have God to be your master. So, just if you were wondering what that meant. So knowing God's goodness, we see, first off, is knowing God's compassion. And God's compassion is like a father's compassion for their children. Um, it's a compassion that, yeah, and, and just to, to further on that, you know, your, your son, your daughter, someone you care about, they do something wrong, even something that hurts you, you don't, you still have compassion for them. You still uh, want them to grow and move forward. So that's the same compassion that God has. And he is good. So, and then, so he says, God, he says, Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy. So knowing God's goodness means knowing God's mercy and grace. And so to explain essentially what mercy and grace mean, let me just break away with a story. So this is um, from a famous book and musical called Les Mis. And so the main character in this book, in this musical, his name is Jean Valjean. And so this is kind of Napoleonic era France, and he's, he's a carpenter, but he can't find work. And he's, he can't find work, and he can't make money to feed his family. And so this one night, he's with his starving kids and his wife, and he breaks, and he's like, he goes out, and he tries to steal some bread. But he's caught, and then thrown in prison for a very long time. It's like 12 years or something, and working really hard just for stealing bread. And then, so, he serves his sentence, he finally comes out, and, well, he's worse off than he was before. He doesn't know where his family is, has no idea if they're even alive still. Um, he doesn't have any, any money, anything, so he's walking through the streets, and he's invited inside by this, this uh, Catholic minister into this little uh, chapel to s spend the night. So he goes in, and he, he goes to sleep and everything, but he wakes up, and he's like, I have nothing, and he, and he cracks again, and he tries to steal the silver candlesticks in this uh, chapel. So he gets away, but again, he's caught. And this time the police, they bring him back to this Catholic minister. And they're like, is this the man who stole your candlesticks? Are these yours? But the Catholic minister says, no, I gave these to him. So in that response, that Catholic minister, he's both showing mercy and grace. And so mercy 
is him not requiring any uh, payment. He's saying, oh, he didn't steal them, right? But grace is saying, oh, I gave them to him. So in that moment, instead of requiring something back from him, which, which justly, you know, after stealing him, after breaking his trust, the Catholic minister had a right to have something back, but instead he gives to Jean Valjean, and he gives him these silver candlesticks, which allows him to move forward. So this is mercy and grace, and this is uh, uh, essentially what God is, uh, what God is saying about himself. He says he is the God of mercy, and um, in the New Testament, there's a, a clear passage about God's mercy and his grace, and let me read that. Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 to 8. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, but our very, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. So we see in this passage even though we were dead in sin, even though we were enemies of God, he was justly angry with us for the way we lived, yet he had mercy on us. And he sent Christ, and Christ's death opens up the way, if we accept it, to receive his grace, his gift of life for us. And that, that is one way to, to think of grace, as grace being a gift, an undeserved gift. So God forgives us. He has mercy on us, but he also provides that we can live in holiness and abundance. Jesus came so that we could have life, but not just life, but abundant life. So we see that knowing God's goodness is knowing his compassion and knowing his mercy and grace. Knowing the goodness of God moving on, means knowing that God is slow to anger. He says, I am slow to anger. So some of us might be a bit surprised that the Bible even says that God gets angry. But this is because um, I think in most contexts, we usually see anger as, um, as bad. And I think most times we do see it, it is bad. Um, because, you know, it's, it's very spontaneous, it's an outburst, it leads to violence or hurting each other and other, 
hurting others in, in various ways. And, so, and it's also motivated um, by selfish reasons or this and that. Um, but God's anger is never any of these. And in fact, we see that he's very patient when he says that he's always slow to get angry. Um, so first off, God's anger is never spontaneous in an outburst. He says he is always patient with people. Um, and, and just to speak about anger, there are situations where anger can be a good and even necessary response for some people to situations. So if you see injustice, if you see someone being mistreated, you should. <laughs> it is good to respond uh, to that with an emotion, and sometimes it's an anger. If that anger leads you just to hurt someone, then, well, it's, you're not using the anger right, but it could, but it is good if an anger leads you to correct a wrong or to bring justice in a good way. Um, and this is the kind of anger God only has. He is slow to anger, but his anger is always motivated by concern for right and wrong. And so as I was even mentioning, God being slow to anger is pretty much, is very similar to him being very patient with us. And a great verse about this is 2 Peter 3.9, which says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. And so uh, the promise here basically is his promise to uh, recreate the world, his promise that Jesus will come back that the resurrection will happen, that uh, everyone will be judged, and, you know, and then the new heavens and the new earth of life and peace. They had eternal life that Pastor Danny even was speaking of last uh, week would fully come. Um, so that, that's the promise that he's talking about here. So the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So we see God is slow to anger. He does, he is going to bring that promise of that day when he makes all things right, when he uh, brings down his uh, anger against sin, anger against evil. Um, But he's very patient for everyone's sake. It says here, he wants everyone to repent. And I'm going to read other verses from this uh, chapter later, but in Ezekiel 18, uh, it says something very similar. It says, God is speaking in first person. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So um, God does have anger over sin, and he does bring judgment, but it's not he doesn't have any pleasure in it. And that's one of the main reasons why he's patient with us. Because he wants everyone and everyone, anyone and everyone, to turn to him. So knowing God's goodness is knowing that he is slow to anger. God, knowing God's goodness is knowing his patience for us. And then he says, I am slow to anger. I am filled to overflowing with unfailing love and faithfulness. So knowing God's goodness means knowing his unfailing love. And so this is the, the fourth attribute. This word unfailing love, it's translated a lot of different ways. 
Um, so, for instance, goodness, mercy, loving kindness, uh, steadfast love, loyal love. So there's like a wide variety of terms that people use for it, mainly because it's a little bit of a formal term and it's hard to translate um, accurately. But basically, love is a big part of it, and it's unfailing love. So it's like, uh, it essentially refers to God's commitment to carry out his promises, God's commitment to fulfill um, what he has promised to do in his covenant. So in God's loyal love, he has chosen each of us. He has chosen, or in this context, in the Old Testament context, he's chosen the people of Israel, and he says he's filled with unfailing love for them. And so let me, let me um, show this, uh, uh, talk about this a little bit more. So like, uh, with a verse from Isaiah 49, so, which shows God's unfailing love for his people. So God has this unfailing love for his people, but over the course of, of the years, many, many hundreds of years after this, he uh, finally brings judgment upon his people, and he brings them into exile, and Jerusalem, their capital city, is destroyed and brought into exile, and this is God's punishment on them for disobeying him. But this verse is about how his unfailing love has not changed for them, and it's still present. So Isaiah 49, uh, 14 to 16. Jerusalem says, yet Jerusalem says, the Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. So this is what they're thinking. This is what they're feeling. But the reply is, never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? Even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. Always in my mind is a picture of Jerusalem's walls in ruin. So God says here, verse 15, um, he cannot desert his people because if it were possible for like a mother holding their child after they're just born to forget their child, it would still be impossible for God to forget the people he has chosen, to forget the people he has love, loyal love towards. Um, so we see how enduring and steadfast God's love is for us. And this definitely applies for us in Christ. Um, and I see that definitely in Romans 8, 37 to 39, which says, No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our love, our Lord. So we see his love is enduring and we cannot be separated from it. So knowing God's goodness is knowing his loving kindness for us. And so God says, uh, back to our passage, 
God says he's filled with unfailing love and he's filled with faithfulness. So the last worship song we sang was, All My Life, God Has Been Faithful. And that's so true to sing because knowing God's goodness means knowing he is faithful. When you say someone is is faithful, basically it means that they keep their promises and maintain their integrity, that they, yeah, and that they remain the same and that you can depend on them. They speak, it also can mean that they speak and are committed to the truth. And that is one thing about this word that I was learning is that it's faithfulness, but it could just as well be translated truthfulness. Um, And the word, and this is an interesting thing about this, is the word in the Hebrew, it's pronounced something like emet, and it's where we get the word amen from. So emet, amen, um, and amen uh, is used in the New Testament, and we use it today, and basically it means yes, or that's true, or um, in the New Testament, Jesus says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily, I say to you, Um, and that, actually, he's saying amen, amen in Greek. Um, So, this word is definitely associated with truthfulness, and I really see this in um, uh, Revelation 3.14, This is a very interesting and powerful use of the word amen. Um, So Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. So this verse says, Jesus is the amen. Jesus is the truthful one. Jesus is the faithful one. He is always reliable. He does not change. And he always speaks the truth. Malachi 3, 6 says, I am the Lord and I do not change. This is why the descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. So God is faithful and he does not change. Change. This is one of many verses in the Old Testament and in the prophets where it speaks about God's unchangeableness. And we even saw that already in his, one of his most common names that he uses for himself, Yahweh. He that is, he does not change. And Jesus is the same. It says in Hebrews 8, uh, 13, 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Jesus uh, is the amen, the faithful and true witness, as we read in Revelation. We can rely on God and trust in him and his word because it is completely true. So now I'm going to read the the passage again, and I'll read the whole thing. The next uh, part is about his forgiveness and how he brings uh, justice, and they go together. So I just wanted to Focus on those five first, and now we'll move to the last two. So Exodus 34, 6 to 7. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. 
but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. So these final two um, characteristics of God's goodness. So the sixth one. So we know that knowing God's goodness is knowing that he forgives. So this phrase is, God says, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So these are three words, and the first two are essentially slightly more specific words for the general term sin. And sin at its most basic is falling short of God's way for people to live. And God's way for people to live is based out of his character and who he is. Um, So God is always truthful, so if you lie, that is a sin. God is always faithful, so to steal is a sin. And so on and so on. And like, knowing, knowing the scripture, <laughs> the Bible is about God, and you learn about God from the Bible. And the Bible, so anything that is opposed to who God is and what God does would be a sin. And then there's also many parts in the Bible where it speaks about sin. And actually, I think I'm going to read one of those in a second. But uh, yeah, so that's sin. That's the general word. So rebellion is a little bit more of if you've, if you've entered a specific relationship with God. So like for Israel, they had entered this covenant. So they rebelled against God when they made this golden calf and uh, worshipped it. So it's breaking, breaking a, a relationship with God and rebelling against him. And iniquity describes more of an inner twistedness or an inner uh, rebellion against God's laws. And Jesus describes this kind of rebellion uh, when he teaches as well. And so I read from Mark 7, uh, 20 to 23. Jesus is teaching and he says, "It it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So these kind of things, these things that come from within, this is iniquity. So it's the inner twistedness. Um, But the point of this verse is that God forgives all of us. God uses three different words for sin, and he says, I'm willing to forgive anything from deep, deep inclinations to very uh, <laughs> obvious rebellions. He will forgive. And so, and just to, to bring us to the New Testament and how we live, God does not only forgive us, but he gives us power and grace to live free from sin. And so I'm going to read, teach about this from Galatians 5, 16 to 17. And so this is actually... Uh, Pastor Danny preached from this verse last week, but this is two verses from before where he started. And so I'll, I'll read Galatians 5.16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. So, as a Christian, 
if you've accepted Christ, God has given you your Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit, sorry. <laughs> God has given you the Holy Spirit. And kind of as the name could imply, the Holy Spirit helps us to live holy. And we see here, it says, when we let the Holy Spirit guide our lives, then we won't be doing what our sinful natures desire. So God has forgiven us, and he's also provided for us to live free from sin and its consequences that come from more sin. So in our lives, we are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to obey each and every day what the Spirit is following us. We are to let God himself guide our lives by his Spirit. And, and this is not always easy, and it's, and it's often a battle, which is what the second verse essentially is talking about. It says that the Spirit uh, opposes the sinful natures, and the sinful nature opposes the Spirit, and it says these two forces are constantly fighting each other. So just, just know to fight sin, very often it is a battle, but as this verse says, when we let the Holy Spirit guide our lives, then we don't do what our sinful natures uh, crave. So be filled with the Spirit. Uh, it is God's good gift to us, God's gracious uh, gift. He's forgiven us, and he's given us his spirit. So knowing God's goodness is knowing his lavish forgiveness. And finally, this is the seventh uh, thing that God says about himself. Knowing God's goodness is knowing that he judges rightly. So these two go together. He says, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do, do not excuse the guilty. He's not, um, uh, a lot of people in the world today would say, oh, you know, everyone's going to heaven as long as you're, you know, kind of, you know, trying to do the right thing and stuff. But this is not what the scriptures say. God says he forgives. His forgiveness is complete and full and brings life, but he's not, going to let evil unpunished, remain unpunished if it needs to be, right? Um, and we couldn't say God, we couldn't say God was fully good if he did not have this attribute of bringing justice to evil and bringing justice upon uh, sin. And this, this attribute goes a lot with what I was saying about God being slow to anger. Um, like I was saying, anger, God's anger is always motivated by his uh, sense of right and wrong, by his, uh, his want for justice to come, his want for, for life to come for people. And it's the same here. So, um, and the phrase uh, about, so the second phrase is, uh, he lays the sins of parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected even children to the third and fourth generation. So I want to explain this a little bit. It is a bit, it is a very harsh thing to say. Um, but first thing I'm going to point out is that before this, he says, I lavish on failing love to a thousand generations. So a thousand is a lot more than three or four. I, I don't know if you realize that. <laughs> but um, just a little bit more. Um, so that's the first thing. God's goodness, God's 
grace for us is far stronger than any, um, any, uh, any harm or wrong that, co- that is caused by sin. Um, though, and so for understanding this, one of the things that I think is important for understanding this in context is that during this time, most families lived more uh, intergenerationally than we do. So like several generations would be living in one farm or in one, one house even. So for God to bring judgment on, say, the father of the house, inevitably it would affect everyone in that household. So I think that's part of what this is saying. But it, is, um, it also points to the, the fact that sin, even forgiven sin, many times has consequences. So if you, say, rob a bank and, and you repent of it and God forgives you, you still will have to go to jail for robbing the bank. There still will be consequences. No one's going to, <laughs> not many people will trust you afterwards and stuff. And so now that's kind of an example. Pretty sure no one, um, yeah, no, no one here would <laughs> go, go for, but it, it's just an example. But uh, there's a lot of different um, sins uh, that we might be tempted to get into that have that same thing. God's forgiveness is complete, and God can break, uh, yeah. But many times there are still consequences for uh, the sinner in our lives. Not eternal, but as we saw with the, the contrast between thousand and three and four, but they are lasting to some degree. So, and one of the things uh, that even, that about this verse, that even later in the Old Testament, God says essentially that this is not going to be, this is not happening anymore, or this is not going to happen anymore. And so this is Ezekiel uh, 18, and so if you read the whole chapter, it's, it's fairly long, and, it, and the verse I'm going to read from is essentially kind of the Cole's notes of it, the, the general principle. And so it's Ezekiel 18.20, which says, The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sin, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sin. Righteous behavior will be righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. So we see here that God is speaking, and he's saying each generation will be judged for their own sin. Um, And at the end of the chapter, he says, in Ezekiel 18, 31, it says, Put all your rebellion behind you, and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O people of Israel? And I think um, this phrase kind of shows us that this really does apply to us. Because I don't know if these people could find themselves a new heart and new spirit at this time. But we know that in Christ, we have a new heart and a new spirit. Jesus has fulfilled those promises. So we know that for us in Christ, uh, our sins will not be laid upon our children. And uh, one thing I can mention is that if your family has been uh, unchristian for a long time or has never dealt with kind of generational sins, it is something that can be broken in prayer. Um, and God and Jesus has 
the power and the will to free you completely from it. Um, so yeah, so and that's one of the reasons, and that's, yeah, and so knowing God's goodness is knowing that he does. Uh, he's just, and he brings judgment upon sin. So I just want to give a, an opportunity here uh, quickly. So I've been talking a lot about accepting Jesus and believing in him. So I just want to give an opportunity here, if anyone hasn't, to do that. So uh, basically, the Bible says that uh, in Romans that if you believe in your, if you confess your, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he's kind of explaining that if you uh, say that Jesus is Lord, if you say that Jesus is your master and you believe what he's done for you, that he's died and that he's risen again for you, then you will be saved. So I just want to give everyone, because that is so easy and so simple to just accept, I want to give uh, anyone here that opportunity. So how we'll do it is I'll just have everyone uh, pray along phrase by phrase with me and then uh, we'll, uh, and that will give anyone who hasn't had the opportunity yet to, to pray along with us. So please just everyone uh, repeat after me phrase by phrase. So, uh, Father God, uh, I believe in you. I repent of my sins and I accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I uh, thank you for giving me your Holy Spirit, even now. Amen.